Hello and welcome to another episode of A Brother's Creed Podcast. We're talking about motivation, experiences, and exploring the world around us. We're the Thomas Brothers. I'm Ethan. And I'm Jared. And today we're going to talk about child prodigies. Uh, there's so many interesting things to talk about this. We're going to talk about what are child prodigies, uh, really the environment that these kids grow in, uh, and some of the innate things that make them just wonder kids, I guess, if you will. Uh, and we're going to talk about a few examples of child prodigies. Uh, this has been really exciting to just to look at and go back and and do some research on some of these amazing individuals and the things that they were able to do uh, at young, very young ages. Uh, it's it's really cool. So uh, it's an exciting episode. And, you know, for me, it's kind of like learning how I can be a better parent to foster an environment where my kids can grow and and be challenged, uh, maybe not to the prodigy status, but a- at least challenge them in their lives so that they can continue to learn uh, and be uh, you know, intelligent individuals, <laughs> which is yeah, from, <laughs> at least my aim, right? <laughs> yeah, from some of the research that, that I had looked into is that a lot of it is uh, just kind of hereditary, but a lot of it is growth and, and uh, learned as well. And mm-hmm. so how can we uh, prepare our children better? That's right. And ourselves even. Yeah, that's right. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. All right, let's do it. Spartans! What is your profession? Any man who must say I am the king is no true king. What I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills that make me a nightmare. If I can change, and you can change, everybody can change! Let us all unite! Let us fight for a new world! A decent world! All right, so the first thing is just like to define a, a child prodigy. Like, what does that exactly mean? There's lots of different uh, meanings out there, or lots of different things. Like, there's something called savant syndrome. Uh, there's, uh, you know, there's different types of, which is a little bit different than a child prodigy. A child prodigy, the definition of that is, uh, is, I guess. It's a child prodigy is a defined in psychological research literature as a person under the age of 10 who produces meaningful output in some domain to the level of an adult expert. The term is also applied more broadly to young people who are extraordinarily talented in some field. So I thought that was interesting. Under the age of 10, basically they're experts just like an adult would be. Thoughts, Ethan? Yeah, well, no, I, I really like that. I was just thinking about kind of what you said. Um, and, and a lot of the research, the things that I kind of went into, it just seemed like that these child prodigies, they just advanced so much quicker than their peers. And and that they, it almost seemed like their threshold for advancement did, did, didn't or doesn't peak. You know, a lot of times us in adulthood, we almost kind of, we almost peak you know in our learning and we're always constantly learning but you kind of get to a certain point to where you're focused on other things yeah and um and with these kids they almost have like just unlimited potential to just learn and they're still it's almost like they 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 tapped into harnessed into this ability of all they have to focus on is learning they don't have other distractions yeah that they have to deal with other than just learning. I yep. mean, if you go to college at 11 years old, you know, you're not worried about 
girls or marriage or your future or jobs or whatever else, all you're worried about is just learning. Or partying or anything that like that. That and car- cartoons <laughs> or whatever else it might be. But there, so, so far, yeah, it's definitely interesting. Yeah, so one of the interesting, I found a lot of interesting stuff, but uh, it, it says, um, this one thing I pull with says, while their work would be enough to impress us if they were in their 40s, prodigies typically re- reach adult levels of performance in nonverbal and rule-based domains such as chess, art, music, uh, before the age of 10. So that's interesting that rule-based domains, one of those is, is coding. Uh, my son, my eldest son has taken a real liking to coding. Uh, he's eight, uh, and he's learning Java. He's learning Python. Uh, most of it's just like copying what the instructor on YouTube is saying and putting it into the code and then running it and then kind of tinkering with it a little bit, but that's how you learn. And, uh, so I thought that was, Oh, Hey, these, these rules based environments like chess or art or music, uh, that's where a lot of people, these prodigies uh, thrive in. Um, some interesting research has gone into uh, child prodigies. Maybe I'll just talk about that a little bit. Uh, while it's true that many prodigies receive support and resources, encouragement from their parents and coaches, uh, such support is typically the result of a demonstrated range to learn, uh, as the prodigy expert Martha J. Morlock uh, refers to as, on this phenomenon. Basically, their range to learn is bigger. It's not totally um, from the resources around them. So they did a, a study of 15 different prodigies across different disciplines, art, music, mathematics, chess, and they did IQ tests for across the board, uh, and they actually found that IQ was not necessarily the marker of a prodigy. In fact, some of them actually had a little bit of a lower IQ than what their peers would be, but in their specific domain, they're absolutely geniuses. Uh, and so that was kind of interesting. I thought, uh, uh, but the real difference that was made in the study that they found was that the difference between a prodigy and an everyday person is that they're, uh, they scored off the charts in working memory better than 99% of the population. So working memory isn't solely the ability to memorize a string of digits. That's a short-term memory. So instead, working memory involves the ability to hold information in memory while being able to manipulate and process other incoming information. And so I can kind of feel this. Like I kind of know what that is in the work that I do. I do do some coding and stuff at work. And so working memory is when you're trying to build something in your head and you're thinking, okay, I need to use this attribute, this attribute, this attribute. I need to join these tables together. And you're kind of working with that information in your head. Uh, And sometimes, honestly, I feel like it's like building a deck of cards in my mind. uh, And then I can easily get distracted. If I get an email that comes in or somebody runs into my office, basically that deck of cards gets wiped out. And then so I have to like really think and build that back up so I can uh, get in the flow, if you will, uh, of, of doing something that has more of a mental taxing load. Uh, one of the things that also came out of this study is that uh, researchers found that as a group, the prodigies showed higher levels of autistic traits compared to a control group of people who weren't prodigies. One particular autistic trait like the, that, uh, that stood out among the prodigies was attention to detail. And the trait has 
was higher among the prodigies than either control group or those with high-functioning autism. So, like, there's some things that, that you know, autism is such a catch-all, uh, but there's some particular um, traits that are very uh, present in these type of prodigies. You know, I thought that was interesting about the high attention to detail. Uh, obviously, that can bleed over into, like, obsessive-compulsive disorder or some type of OCD uh, tendencies. Uh, but I wanted to, I know you have some stuff to share too, Ethan, but I wanted to hit on these things first. Uh, basis, based on the study, child prodigies in, uh, and the interviews that they did, uh, they found that there were a couple factors that led to the child being a prodigy. And these were 11 of them. One was the existence of a domain matched exceptionally well with the prodigy's uh, proclivities and interests. So, you know, the, 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 the child was really interested and had a proclivity for, uh, you know, rocket science, and rocket science actually existed. If it didn't exist, you know, then, then that wouldn't be around. So, you know, if you had someone like um, one of the ones I'm going to talk about was Mozart, if the piano and violin had never been even invented, you know, he, it wouldn't, he wouldn't have been able to do that. The availability of the, in the availability of domain in the prodigy's geographical area is another one. The health, uh, social, and emotional development of the child. Four is the family aspect, birth order, and gender. Five is educational preparation, formal and informal. Six is a cultural support. Seven is recognition of achievements in the domain. Eight is access to training and resources. Nine is material support from family members. Ten, at least one parent completely committed to the prodigy's development. I thought that was very interesting. Eleven was family traditions that favored child development. Uh, so, you know, therefore, genes exert their influence on the development of the talent through their conditions, uh, through their control of uh, motivations, preferences, and emotional responses. That was an additional thing it said. So, that, it's not just. Uh, I genetics. think that's. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. You know, the the one part, like at least one parent is dedicated to complete, completely to the to the rearing or or, or dedication to this child and, and their prodigy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was even thinking in a lot of the, the the different things that I had read about some child prodigies and different things. You know, a lot of them, at, at least in kind of like the modern day, right? They uh, they at 13 years old go to college or like, you know, I think the earliest one was like 11 years old. They were in college. I was like, you know, and this was in maybe the early 2000s or the late 90s. And it's like, you know, how is a 10 year old or a 13 year old going to college? I was like, there's there's probably got to be some rules against that in general. Like their parent has to be present in class with them at all times or, you know, like driving them back and forth and like there's probably just constant vigilance that needs to be taken as a parent to be able to just kind of rear this and 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 emphasize on or support the this prodigy. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm sure there because is. Because I think because I think a lot of times we think, oh, this kid is is you know really good at math. Well, just because they're amazing at math, they could be the most the smartest math person or the best chess player in the entire world at at fourteen. But that doesn't mean that like they are at ten. But it doesn't mean they know like 
everything else about life. That doesn't mean they yeah. can't be taken advantage of, or that doesn't mean they can't be, you know, can't be making their own food or, yeah. you know, I think it's, you kind the of see this advancement is just in one in, area. Yeah. It's just in that domain. And you, ex- yeah, you expect this advancement everywhere, but it's like, that's, that's not really how it works, particularly just because they're amazing at this one thing doesn't mean that they're, you know, better than a 40 year old at life. Yeah. Now, you had some other research or some other information you yeah. had pulled, Ethan. Yeah, I, I had gone through, and, and I like what you said about the IQ. You know, IQ isn't isn't a, a end-all, be-all for if a kid is a prodigy, then he's going to have a high IQ. Um, a lot of that is just kind of within a specific area that you could be so focused on that and so good at versus, you know, just kind of general well or general well-roundedness, I guess. Um, but I've always kind of been fascinated by IQ. And maybe just because I didn't quite understand how it worked. Uh, So I did some research on it, right? And a person's IQ can be collected by having um, the person take what's basically called an intelligent test. IQ stands for intelligent quotient. And it's a number um, that's derived by you take the score of the person's test, um, you divide it by their age, and then multiply it by 100. All of that really doesn't matter. But... The average IQ uh, for for all people is 100. That's kind of right in the middle, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, in, in a, a person who achieves a score higher than 100, you are smarter than the average person. And if you get a score lower than 100, then you are less smart than the average person. Is <laughs> that, um, that like a for, on Forrest Gump? He's like, this is where normal people are. And this is where your son is down is here <laughs> to the left. <laughs> yeah, and and I've never actually taken an, an IQ test before, so I don't really know exactly all the questions are on it. And I've always cared. I was like, well, well, what do they, what do they test you on? Is it like math skills and and reading and and all this sort of kind of stuff? Um, but it's really not. Uh, I kind of was looking at some of the questions, and it says uh, these are some of the things that they test you on: logic, spatial awareness. Awareness, verbal reasoning, visual abilities are just some key areas that are assessed by many IQ tests. Um, it says that uh, they are not intended to, to measure your knowledge of specific subjects, uh, like an SAT or an ACT. It's more just kind of like general, um, I guess, understanding yeah. and, and a- think. ability. They make to, you think. Yeah, ability to think. Yeah, because um, anybody can learn history, yeah. or, and it's not really yeah. something. It's not really something you can study for either. It's just kind of your ability to solve logic, use logic to solve problems, recognize patterns, um, and make rapid connections between different points of information. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the the kind of the people that I had looked up were were on that that list of uh, young kids that had super high. Um, um, IQs. IQs, and really anyone, I guess, kind of just from from low to high, the IQ scale is from one to twenty four is profound mental disability, twenty five to thirty nine is severe mental disability, forty to uh, fifty four is moderate mental disability. Then it kind of goes up the list, um, right? Eighty five to one fourteen, which is kind of right in the middle. There is average intelligence. 115 to 130 is above average or very bright. 130 to 
144 is meant uh, moderately gifted, and it kind of keeps going up. Uh, 160 to 180 is ex exceptionally gifted, and then anything above 180 uh, is profoundly gifted. But one mm. thing that an IQ test does is it kind of compares you to uh, similar people within your age because it takes age into account mm -hmm. in, in calculating the, the IQ test. Um, but really interesting. Uh, I was kind of like, well, maybe personally, I don't want to take an IQ test and hopefully I fall above 100. I don't we can know. post your results on the Brothers Creed, a.brothers.creed yeah, on Instagram. <laughs> if if they're good, if they're not, then I'll just, I'll say, oh, I forgot <laughs> to do it. Um, but looking into it and studying some of these these child geniuses or child prodigies uh, that, that have this high intelligence doesn't specifically mean that there's a really high IQ, like Jared said, but they just show kind of um, this this genius in, in certain aspects. Um, and, and I think it can be, I mean, there are some kids that are amazing just in, in, in what they do. And it's really interesting because I, I was actually looking it up, you know, and how many people have lived on this earth since, let's even just say, 1900? I mean, there's like 7 billion people in the world right now. And, you know, if you account for all the people that have been born and all the people that died during that period, you know, since since the 1900 or since 1900, even we don't even go back that far. You're talking about billions and billions and billions, probably even hundreds of billions of people um, over that time period. And so, uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me that you have this small group of people that are just extremely gifted. Um, you're going to have anomalies in groups of, uh, you know, groups of people. Oh, yeah. So it, it wasn't surprising. I was reading a lot of these things. I'm just like, wow, you know, why, you know, that, that, that's not me or, you know, why couldn't this be that or the other? And it's just like, well, I think a lot, there's a lot of different factors that go into it, but there's a lot of positive situations that this has created. And there's a lot of negative situations also that have come out of, um, you know, kind of this child prodigies or child genius and so i was digging into intelligence a little bit more and then we can get into some examples but there's a couple things so there's a, a group of of positive signs of high intelligence um and this is kind of a couple things that you said jared so good memory and thinking ability as a positive sign of high intelligence uh good attitude and hard-working nature general and tact they have good general and tactic knowledge um, they have good language proficiency and reasoning skills, uh, reliable decision makers. They are trusted by others. They're highly creative. They uh, have high achievements and they're very good at problem solving and typically have a good intuition. Those are kind of some positive signs of someone who is highly intelligent. Now, some of the, the negative signs of people who are highly intelligent are they are prone to uh, mental illnesses. Uh, this is one thing that you had mentioned, Jared. You know, a lot of these people that are, are, are really high on this scale are, um, you know, maybe they might be on the, the, the spectrum of autism or might be suffering with other things, uh, just kind of mental things. was really interesting that I was reading as well. Um, especially things like uh, anxiety and depression as well. Um, a lot of uh, these kids that are just so uh, heightened 
in their understanding and their skills and even their surrounding and their environment. Uh, you had mentioned kind of OCD mm-hmm. that that uh, these kids they were saying that they're kind of prone to getting sick more because they're actually more in tune with like their environment and so change slight changes in their environment can be very anxiety inducing and it can stress them out even if they're like not even noticeable to other people um but changes in environment of someone who is so uh just kind of has the mental capacity of understanding everything that's going around or even just they're constantly observing even if it's subconscious observation um it can stress them out and so they can they're prone to more sicknesses uh mental mental and physical uh, another negative sign is um, anxiety-induced performance issues, difficulty having romantic success, and difficulty controlling their impulses. Um, so there's just kind of some, some, I guess, the negative signs of what they've seen in general for highly intelligent people. This wasn't specific to children, yeah. but it did say that it's, uh, that's, it's kind of where these things start, and they can snowball both the positives and the negatives. Yeah, like so, definitely interesting. Yeah, some of those I, I don't think apply exactly to child prodigies. Like for example, the one you you mentioned like people being creative. That doesn't necessarily apply to the child. I mean, in some child prodigies it may, but like uh one of the ways that child prodigies really excelled was in the rules-based uh, domains, which kind of takes away a lot of that creativity because it's it's in within a well, I guess in some ways maybe not. I'd say uh, Mozart was pretty creative. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'll say that's true. Um, I mean, I'd say it takes. I'd say it, it, it. You know, to do really good at coding, I would say you have to be kind of creative and thinking outside the box. Well, I think that's what I'm thinking. Is like there's not much outside the box. It's just within the box they can perform well. Uh, and that's within the rules based domain. Or like chess, yeah. so you can only make certain moves, but within those moves, within that realm, you're a genius. You know. Yeah. But you can yeah, be creative, I guess. Combinations with, of moves are there. Yeah, but I mean, you can be creative within that domain, but outside thinking yeah. outside of that, you know, I guess is a little bit different. Yeah. Well, I think creati- creativity doesn't always mean like you know drawing or you know whatever else. I mean, you can have creative problem solving. Oh yeah, yeah. So, well, cool. Are we ready to jump into what, some of the examples here? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so one of the ones that I did, uh, and researching this was just fascinating. Uh, I was just like, oh my gosh, this guy is absolutely amazing. Um, so I'm going to talk to you about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. So he was born in Germany in 1756. Uh, he's an amazing piano player and composer. Uh, now, when uh, his uh, he had a couple, he had an older sister. And when she was seven, uh, she would play the keyboard lessons with her father. His father was a composer and a teacher, uh, and uh, he was a violinist. And while her three-year-old brother, Mozart, would look on, uh, and years later, uh, she said that, you know, after he had died, she said that he was always there, uh, you know, listening in when she was practicing. And she also said uh, something that she quoted was, he often spent much time at the piano, picking out thirds, which he was ever striking. And his pleasure showed that it sounded good. In the four, in our fourth year, 
In the fourth year of his age, his father, for a game, as it were, began to teach him a few minuets uh, and pieces at the at the piano. He could play it flawlessly and with a great delicacy and keeping exactly in time. At the age of five, he was already composing little pieces, which he played to his father, who wrote them down. So uh, one of the things I want to do uh, is show you guys one of these examples of just the masterpiece of what he would do and and how he would just play the the uh, one of the things he composed. So I'm just pulling this up here. This is one of his first compositions, and this is known as uh, K1. And it's you'll notice that it's just kind of a middle minuet. This is called uh, Minuet and Trio in G. Uh, and this is K1. So the way that the whole system works is, is like his whole entire archive of, of music is kind of each piece is labeled with a, a K and then a number. So this is his first piece that he composed at the age of five. So I'm going to play this. So that's just a little snippet of it. But man, that's pretty good for a five-year-old to come up with that. Seriously. So uh, that was when he was five, and he wrote his first, and he would play it for his father, and his basically his dad would write it down. So he didn't quite know the notes, how to write the notes yet, but his his dad obviously would teach him. So he had over six hundred works. So that was K one. It goes all the way up to the to K six hundred, or a little, a little over six hundred. Now, his dad was, like I said earlier, his educator, a pianist, and a musical instructor himself. Uh, in his early years, Wolfgang's father was his only teacher. Uh, uh, along with his music, his father taught his children language, languages, academic subjects. Um, one of the historians notes that with Leopold, who was his dad, was a devoted teacher to his children, there is evidence that Mozart was keen to progress beyond what he was taught. His first inks spattered composition, uh, his precocious efforts with the violin were of his of his initiative and came as a surprise to his father, who eventually gave up uh, composing when his son's musical talents became evident. So he actually, his father didn't know. His son just picked up the violin and the piano. He just started playing like crazy. And he's like, oh, he's just really interested in this. So he just kind of, he was that devoted parent that we talked about earlier that really devoted uh, his everything to his son. Now, they basically what they did is they traveled around for a while uh, with the whole family around the country performing for nobles, uh, dignitaries, uh, just as this genius wonder kid that everybody was just so impressed with. Now, when he was 15, he went to kind of a little bit of a school uh, in Rome, and one really funny thing that happened there is he went to the Sistine Chapel, and he heard Giorgio Allegri's uh, uh, P-1 
piece that's called, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, it's Miserere, uh, which is Latin for uh, a prayer of mercy. I'm going to play that uh, and then give you a little bit of context. Uh, think about, just think about uh, this and Mozart heard this only two times. I'll tell you what beforehand. Mozart heard this only two times, and then he was able to basically memorize it and then write it down, uh, which was an unauthorized copy that the Vatican did not authorize. And he memorized it and then wrote it down uh, because it was one just, of the just by hearing it two just times. by hearing it two times. Uh, so I'm going to play a little bit of that. So let's take a listen. So that's just a little piece, but man, she gets the high note. It reminds me, I'm going to completely throw off the mood here, but it reminds me of a, Monty Python? like a, a <laughs> no, a, a, yeah, a video I saw once or they were doing this in like a, a church and, and they didn't have, it was like a bunch of guys that were doing it and they didn't have a, a, I guess a female part for that. So those one guy had like a, a balloon of helium and like sucked in a bunch of helium <laughs> right before he did that part. That's pretty cool. If you could pull that off with helium, yeah. even then. But yeah, I mean, talk, that's all in Latin, obviously. Uh, but he heard that being sung in the Sistine Chapel uh, in you know 1777, uh, and he was 15 years old when he just. And that's that part about that working memory. He's able to just memorize it, went and wrote it down. Uh, and obviously, the Catholic Church wasn't too pleased that he had uh, wrote an illegal copy of that song. You know how the Catholic Church holds their stuff in the Vatican holds their. Uh, stuff pretty close to the chest, right? <laughs> in the in the vault. Um, yeah, that's that's crazy, and it's that's a, such a common theme that I'm seeing in all of all all the kind of the ones that I looked at and what we're talking about here is just that memory. And I wonder if um, if almost uh, people that have like a photographic memory kind of ease more easily fit into this this slot. Yeah. Um, you know, pe- people that can just see something one time or hear something one time like this or twice and, and just be able to, now it's like locked in their mind forever. And it's just, they can recall at a moment's notice of what they saw or read and what page it was 10 years ago. And I mean, I can't even imagine having that kind of memory. Oh yeah. But also imagine like remembering every single thing you see, you know? It's like be more careful yeah, on TikTok. I guess, I guess. you want to you want to forget stuff. <laughs> uh, so there's uh, so that so he obviously grew up and continued to tour. 
uh, continued to work. He eventually got a different some different jobs. Uh, he would just start writing more and more and more. He was fellowshipping with other uh, composers like Bach and others, uh, and he would go around and work for different dignitaries and stuff. His career was kind of up and down a little bit because at time uh, he would um, be doing really well. Then there was a, one time when there was a war and there wasn't just there wasn't so much uh, you know needed. There wasn't been really a need for to spend money on composers and stuff. Uh, he at the age of twenty one in seventeen seventy seven uh, he wrote K two seventy one which is a piano concerto, concerto uh, and it was considered a breakthrough at the time. Uh, just, And I have a piece of that that I want to share. This thing absolutely rips, man. It's like 30 minutes long. Uh, first of all, what I'm gonna, the video I'm going to share, this lady who's playing it, she's like straight-up gangster, man. Uh, she does an amazing job. Uh Oh, she does all for memory. Thirty minutes, all for memory, and it's like crazy um, interplay between the violins, the strings, and the piano. Uh, I'm gonna play two different parts here because uh, these parts are really cool. So I'm gonna play the first part at 22 minutes and 30 seconds, and then I'm gonna play the other part, which is at around four minutes. So just so you can get a flavor of this break, what like how much of a breakthrough this was. And like at the age of 21, to be able to write something like this is just kind of crazy. All right, here we go. Okay, so that I mean, it's so good. I'm just gonna play this one other part because, like, I love how the violins just really come in with a piano at this part. It's really cool. I'm gonna play it right here.
Dude, that part gives me chills, man. <laughs> she like totally kills it on that piano. And then the and then the strings just really take it. Oh man, it's so good. I'm like, wow, this is I can't I've never even heard this before. And I'm like almost in tears here how beautiful this music is, you know? Uh it's just that's why I said I really enjoyed uh just digging into some of his music and just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe a a twenty one year old wrote this. And that's just, you know, one of his many, many pieces. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I I, I mean, I'm looking at that lady playing the piano, and I'm just like, oh man, she's kind of. I wonder if she started off prodigy like as well, <laughs> or did she? I mean, she was a little bit older. Did she build that her whole life? She well, that lady playing it because uh, I was showing a video for uh, on YouTube. I was sharing my screen with Ethan. Uh, her her name is Maria Joa uh, Pierce. I think that she used to work at Juilliard. Uh, then she went to I think Portugal. Uh, where she's an instructor. I think during this, she was either... Ha- I read in one of the comments that she had cancer. Uh, she was undergoing cancer treatment while she did this. And she plays this entire 30-minute piano thing with no notes, just for straight from memory, dude. I mean, she's yeah, no, the, no, no music. the prodigy here almost, you know? It's just like, oh my yeah. gosh. But, uh, yeah. Was, I, yeah, I was just kind of thinking too, you know, I wonder if you can get... There's probably... I don't know, maybe somewhere in the world there might be a young person that can play that, and uh, um, I mean just the tempo that that it keeps and and everything else. That that's crazy. Yeah, way cool. Yeah, so uh, probably uh, probably a better mastery of music than some of the uh, musicians of today. I would say. Oh yeah, man, talk about that have that have all of their stuff written for them, and they're just like, hey, the face of the music, and they're like, just say these words and. Yeah, I mean, nowadays, dance. nowadays there's just a lot of performing performers, but like occasionally yeah. you will get some actual artists. Like, I mean, like Coldplay, uh, like Taylor Swift. I mean, she writes all of her own stuff. She plays her own stuff. She sings her own stuff. I mean, even Justin Bieber. Uh, I know that he's a performer, but he was a child star. Uh, and you know, there's others out there that you know, but some of these like, you know like Ariana Grande and some of these other ones, they just play what everybody else, they just play other people's songs. So anyway, yeah, I think it's just, there's more, it's just such a more of impressive talent when someone can write it on their own. So to round out his story, you know, obviously uh, he ended up having six, he ended up having six children, only two of which survived with his wife. I wanted to see if, uh, uh, you know, he had any, really somber pieces from that period of his life, but I didn't get a chance to. Uh, he joined the Masons at age 26, uh, 28. We, we talked about the Masons. Uh, he composed many operas, and uh, he had some ups and downs, like I mentioned before. At one point, he was kind of destitute. Uh, he tried to get a job with like the Archduke of, the, of Germany, but the Archduke's wife was like, we don't need to hire people that don't add any value. <laughs> That's what she said, and so... I was kind of into that discussion. But later, he did uh, get to uh, work for many nobles in the area. Uh, he said that at one point, he moved to uh, Alsgrund. Uh, he said, although it has been suggested that Mozart aimed to reduce his rental expenses by moving to a suburb, uh, he wrote in a letter, Mozart did, that Mozart had not reduced his expenses, but merely increased the housing space at, uh, at, but merely, 
like increase the housing space at his disposal. So he's like, oh, I didn't just necessarily, yeah, I just moved to the suburbs so I could have more house, I guess. <laughs> uh, and he later got uh, some better gigs, and so he kind of rebounded out of that. But at 35, uh, he fell ill with a, we don't know why, uh, and he died at age 35. So uh, I think I, I was telling Shannon, and my wife, that, and she poetically said, well, he had a, he had a short life, and he had to, a work to be the work that needed to be done in a short time. So he was given a gift uh, early in life. I think that's a beautiful way to look at it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I wonder if there's a trend, and oh, we'd have to I'd have to look into this. But I wonder if there's a trend that um, some of these kind of child prodigies um, live shorter lives. Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, you would think that. Uh, Really, kind of a lot of times these child prodigies almost have less of a childhood. Yeah. Um, just because of the. They're the already world performing they're thrust, at an thrust into. adult's level. Yeah. They're already yeah. competing at, like, that's the nature of being a child prodigies. You're already competing with the adults, like, at that level. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if they, I wonder if the life expectancy for someone who's at this level or Mozart level or whatever else is. Uh, uh, reduced for some yeah, reason. Reduced. I don't know. Uh, all right. Well, I was going to talk about um, there. There's this one guy. His name is uh, William James Sidis, and he is uh, has been pronounced to be supposedly the smartest man who ever lived. Self-pronounced um, or pronounced objectively? No, not so, not self-pronounced. Objectively pronounced that by others. So, um, and there's a lot of people that you know. I, I guess uh, are are involved in this. So this was the early uh, 1900s. And so at age eight, uh, William proved first his his mathematic giftedness uh, by developing, this was at age eight, eight years old, developing a new logarithmic table based off of the number 12. Don't ask me what that means, but it sounds really <laughs> interesting. Um, now, based off of the number 10 is not that impressive, but 12 yeah, ten, ten is pretty just impressive. Like standard log. Yeah, it's just you know, a, dude, that's just amateur hour. I do that in the crib, man. I was like, oh, geez. <laughs> Um, so apparently it was so, uh, kind of groundbreaking at the time that, uh, he actually gave a lecture at Harvard university that, that later that same year, um, that he kind of discovered this, uh, new mathematical, uh, uh, table base. So, um, next, uh, he kind of, uh, went and set some world records, uh, for the youngest person to enroll in prestigious university. Um, and at, uh, 11 years old, graduated, um, or he went to university, uh, he went to Harvard at 11 years old and graduated, uh, top of his class five years later. Uh, he, he was one of the, the youngest person, people to ever go to, uh, university or to college. Um, he was considered the smartest man to ever lived by some because he had an estimated IQ of 200 to 300. 200 to 300? Um, 250 to 300 was his, was his estimated IQ. Um, now, that's really kind of interesting because, you know, when we went over, if you remember, we went over the IQ test, 100 was average. Anything above 180 was considered um, profoundly gifted. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought that was really interesting. So um, he did 
lots and lots of different things. Um, by the age of eight, he was fluent in eight languages. Uh, he was fluent in Latin, Greek, French, Russian, German, Hebrew, Turkish, Armenian, and uh, English, which is actually nine languages. Wow. And then he actually invented his own language called Vendergood. Oh. Is that German-based? Uh, which is <laughs> interesting. And I actually, I kind of looked at some of the, on, on Wikipedia, it had some of his, his language that he invented, and it had like the whole counting system, and then it had a bunch of phrases, and it was just kind of interesting. It looked like it had like Latin roots and, um, you know, kind of similar to maybe like a Spanish or Latin or Italian kind of. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it was kind of interesting. So um, after this incredible childhood or really kind of lack thereof that he he lived, he actually struggled um, into uh, adulthood. And there was several newspapers at the time that reported that he was the genius who had burned himself out. Um, and so due to this, kind of in his, his, his uh, once he got into being his 20s and his, his adulthood, uh, early 30s, he, uh, he just started taking kind of like blue-collar jobs just to... Um, get by, I guess. Get by and and just kind of like numb out. He just didn't want to think about what was going on. He didn't want to. Uh, maybe it was just the, the kind of one of these anxiety issues that it was just too much. The performance of everything, and he was always in the newspapers before that as a kid and growing up. Um. So, and whenever he uh, was in his early twenties, he actually was at this. Um, it's kind of like parade and celebration that they were having, and he got into a physical altercation with uh, another person, and he actually got arrested. And it wasn't that big a deal, but he got arrested, and he got put in jail for a couple days or whatever. And um, the news newspapers had a heyday with it. And, you know, at that time, it was kind of, I don't know, the, the, the newspapers were the Facebook of the time, right? And it was just like, it was... All the uh, simps were, out there like piling on, you know, the smartest man in the world ends up in jail. And every yeah. guy is like, oh, honey, guess what? The smartest man in the world's in jail. Huh. Well, I guess, you know... Yeah, I guess it wasn't smart, smart after all. Yeah. So <laughs> he said that this kind of ruined his reputation um, and that the pressure to perform all the time was just too much, right? He said he could, he could, he could never mess up because then it was like utter failure to everyone else that's, that's a um, high title to have you know and then feel like you always have to defend it or whatever yeah so he re he returned kind of to the east coast uh in the new new york area in 1921 where he lived kind of a, an independent yet very private life um he kind of would would lead these uh these discussions that he would have with groups of people i think like in the park or in like kind of back rooms of places that were uh, kind of learned discussions, and he would teach people things, but he kept his his smarts really close to the chest. That was um, is, is he in is this in America? Yeah, okay. yeah. This at this time was yeah. Okay. He was born. Um, I don't know exactly where he was uh, was born, but uh, he, most of his time was was in in, in America. I think he actually might have been American. Um, so kind of to round out his story, he worked uh, in New York City. He kind of became estranged from his parents after this whole incident about the um, the 
uh, the whole arresting thing, and then he, he the rest of his life he just kind of lived uh, kind of a, this is a sad story, but just kind of lived kind of a lonely life. Um, and the, the his neighbors, the people around him, the friends that did have just described him as just kind of being a loner. He like didn't like interacting with people too much that he did not know, um, but that they were the smart. He was the smartest person that they had ever talked to. Um, that he could talk with, he could talk about anything with anyone, whether it was, you know, the the astrophysics professor at Harvard or a, a five year old kid talking about yeah. Pokemon cards. I don't know whatever kids talked about in nineteen twenty. <laughs> Well, that's interesting so, uh, because, you know, we, you know, we talked about how society, and one of the things I mentioned was society and the way that the culture views someone. If the culture around a person is that like any mistake is seen as a giant failure, then that really prevents someone from really growing into being a great person. Uh, you know, like sounds like which was a situation with this guy is that he was just so criticized and he was just expected to be so much that uh, it really kind of killed his his drive. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, did you have another one? I had a couple more, but... Uh, yeah, I have uh, one. I have just kind of one small one. Uh, so this is the story of, of a guy. His name was Laszlo, uh, and he had uh, some daughters. who One of them ended up becoming like a chess prodigy. So I found this story interesting because... He was an educational uh, psychologist and was convinced that exceptional mental abilities were less a result of inborn talent than of proper training. He claimed that he could turn a child into a prodigy, and he even wrote a manual called, quote, Raise a Genius. That's the name of the book. I actually looked it up online, and I'm like, ooh, I kind of want to read this. Uh, It's just Raise a Genius, exclamation mark. That's the name of his book uh, by... Laszlo Polgar, P-O-L-G-A-R. So his, his ideas may have sounded kind of grandiose and outlandish at the time, but maybe less so when all of three of his daughters, the test cases for his uh, his vision, turned out to be chess prodigies. Uh, raised in an environment of constant chess practice, uh, the Polgar sisters rocked the male-dominated world of competitive chess, forcing many to question the widespread assumption that males players were naturally superior. At the age of uh, his eldest daughter, Susan, at the age of was one of the top-ranked female players in the world at age 15, and in January 1991, she was the first woman to ever earn a grandmaster rank on the basis, uh, same basis as a male player. But she was soon eclipsed by her younger sister, uh, Judith Pulgar. In 1991, the 15-year-old Judith became the youngest player ever to earn the rank of Grandmaster, breaking the, the record set by Bobby Fischer in 1958. Um, the record's been broken several times since then, but you know at the time it was very revolutionary. During her career, Judith avoided women's only events, instead focused on playing in the best male players in the world, often with great success. In 2005, she reached eighth in the, in the ranking of top players in chess, becoming the only woman ever to reach the top 10. So I thought this one was interesting because this guy, maybe those kids weren't necessarily born geniuses, but because their brains were so moldable and he trained them up uh, to be great. Uh, and 
in that domain, uh, they were able to do that. And so I'm actually kind of curious to read his book. Uh, but anyway, that was the story. I think a lot of it is providing the right opportunities for your children to to progress. Um, you know, it's like what it, like you said, what if uh, Mozart's dad if didn't have a piano or a uh, violin in the house? Yep. Or if they didn't have the then, money to send him to school to learn or, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, or what if the, you know, I think of like, I don't know, the uh, Venus and Serena Williams and tennis players. Yep. You know, I, I never, I didn't or Tiger movie, Woods, but Or Tiger Woods. Yeah, the, their, their parents were like, did everything that they could to support um, this, the, the, this one thing, you know, and it was almost like they found it early and they just attached onto it and it was like full steam ahead, an entire family thing. It wasn't just, yep. oh, you know, we're going to take, you know, Serena to tennis practice this week, once a week. It was like, you know, or it was, the dad was, hey, we're going to practice every single day. Whenever I get home from work, it's going to be five hours of tennis practice. Or I mean, that's 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 just as much on him as it is on the kids. Oh, yeah. That's why Mozart's dad, like, basically put away his profession to do this. Uh, so it's absolutely so critical. I was looking at some other ones, and, like, most of the time these kids will take on, like, it's easy for their parents to, like, help teach. And there was one child prodigy I was reading about where he, like, had created his own Apple app, mobile app, uh, that he released at the age of 11. And his dad was an app developer. So his dad helped him and coached him all along the way, uh, and the son just learned how to do it. So I was like, oh, man, the parents' involvement in this and their instruction and their uh, resources that they bring to bear is just critical uh, with having these kids uh, really become something that's uh, extraordinary in the sense of... uh, you know, of these childhood geniuses. Yeah. that That's one thing that, um, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll praise our parents a little bit. At least I felt this way, um, that they always provided us opportunities, um, to, to learn new things, whether it was, uh, you know, sports, we played lots of different sports. And if we were kind of interested in a sport, then they would support us in, in, in looking at that. Um, you know, whether it was soccer or lacrosse or, or, uh, uh, you know, basketball or even played football and, and different things. Or, um, you know, at, at one point I played the violin and then I played the guitar and then I played the cello and then I played the trumpet for a while. And then I played, you know, it just seemed like, I mean, I never stuck with any of them really. And then maybe that just shows on me, but I mean, actually I was, I was decent at the cello. Um, but then I stopped playing it because, uh, kids are making fun of me on the bus. And so I left that quick. Um, but you know, as I, I, it has to do with the culture. If the culture is there, man, you know, it's got to be yeah. supportive culture. And me as a parent now, um, I'm like, man, am I, uh, how am I providing my kids with the, the most opportunities to find their thing, to be good at one thing? And I don't want to present them too much. Um, so, you know, you don't get analysis paralysis, but at the mm. same point, uh, you know, I think, just kind of introducing and, and, and a lot of different things. Uh, you mentioned Bobby Fischer uh, in the chess world. Uh, that was kind of one that one that I had. Um, he was a, a world class chess champion at 14 years old. He was the youngest person to um, win the World Chess Championship. Uh, he he won that title at 14 years old. 
Um, and at that time, uh, I think this was before the one you had said, uh, he was the youngest international grandmaster um, at age 15. Um, he became the, the highest uh, ranked player in 1972. I mean, just so young. Um, <laughs> I can't even imagine a 14-year-old playing against like adults in the 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 world chess championship and yeah like a you know 60 year old man sitting next sitting across the table from a 14 year old kid and and losing getting absolutely like, oh. schooled yeah it's, it's like, like dude oh, respect and, man and, this kid's and, like absolute wonder and if, and if you make it yeah if you make it to the world chess championship you're no schmuck either oh no i'm sure that they and had so immense like, respect i'm sure that those people had just immense respect for Bobby Fischer and also were kind of like mentors, you know, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I had a different story, uh, another story. This is kind of a story of opportunity and upbringing. Um, this is a story of Robert Pace. Um, he was always a very, very promising child. Um, when he was in, in like, even preschool like nursery school even pre-elementary school they called him the professor just because he was always learning and teaching other people um at one point uh, a big business executive met uh, robert pace at a uh uh kind of like a banquet as a, a young child when i think he was in i don't know maybe middle school or something like that and this business executive was so impressed by uh robert that he basically gave him a blank check to pay for all of his education. Um, wow. Uh, Robert was, was raised in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, he was the son of a single mother who worked three jobs incredibly hard to try to improve their circumstance. Uh, his father was in prison for double murder. Um, Dang. And so... Uh, pace at a, a young age uh, i think it was like 16 or something like that he was accepted into uh yale where he studied biochemistry and was just top of his class beating all these other people out i mean it just came so easy to him well the issue is um you know he had all the smarts he had all his potential he had all of his schooling paid for he had you know the opportunity and the mind of a lifetime. Secretly, uh, while he was doing that, studying biochemistry at Yale, he was moonlighting as a big-time marijuana dealer. Uh, no he way. Had, he had eventually massed about $100,000 um, from dealing, uh, growing and dealing marijuana. Um, and instead of kind of using this education and this this smarts and opportunity that he had to to grow and to get a legitimate job and everything else uh, he kind of continued this life of dealing drugs and growing marijuana and uh at age 30 he was uh shot to shot to death in one of his uh, marijuana greenhouses um during a, a like kind of like a, a rival gang raid what year was this uh 2011 oh wow when he when, when he was killed Tragic, man. So, yeah, it's almost just like, you know, I read that and I, I thought I'd put that in there because that's almost the opposite, like the exact opposite of having support. Um, you know, mom constantly working, 
to support the family, not because she wanted not to yeah. yeah, wanted not to be around. It was because she had to. And then, you know, this kid is just incredibly intelligent and, you know, gets accepted into one of the most prestigious universities in the United States at a, at a super young age, paid for, completely paid for by this businessman. But where's the support? Um, yeah. You know, it's like, wh- I, I think... I think a lot of that has to do with a uh, lack of uh, father in the household. Yep. Um, just lack of general support. And it's kind of a sad thing, but it almost brought it back a reality to me of the importance of supporting your children. And uh, I mean, even just having two parents in, in, in the home um, and, and, and tag teaming, tag teaming it. Yeah. Because I think it takes, I mean, it takes a, a village, right. To kind of raise, uh, to raise kids, and lots of people do it by themselves, but I think the more support that we can give these kids uh, as husband and wife and as parents, but also as, as aunts and uncles and grandparents and everything else and just just support and encouragement and everything else, I think that is uh, invaluable when it comes to uh, the, just the, the development of... Oh, yeah. Of children. Oh yeah, totally. Children, children that are prodigies, as well as children that you know might just be Regular average kids. Joes. Yeah, exactly. I, that reminds me of that one story about that. I think we told that on the podcast. That story about the the Boy Scout who uh, built a nuclear reactor in his backyard. Yeah, it was thrown off tons of radiation. <laughs> yeah. and got, yeah. It got like picked up by like NORAD or something like that. Like, what is this radiation hotspot in the middle of like the suburbs? And he like ended up building this whole thing and like just throwing it all in the garbage because <laughs> his mom got pissed and grounded him and threw all of his radioactive material in the garbage can. <laughs> uh, he had he had make like he had made like makeshift uh, uh, radiation gear for himself and it was just like no, I don't think I don't know if he did or not, but it was just in the shed. It was just like a nu- He built a nuclear reactor uh, for a scout project. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure. I don't I can't remember what what episode we talked about that on, but. That was a wild story. Uh, but going back to what something you said earlier, I mean, yeah, for me, it, what haunts me is like a dad is just, am I providing enough opportunities for my kids? And like, I feel like I've been given these precious seeds uh, that it's my responsibility to grow. And so something that keeps me up at night is that like, am I watering them? Is the water, is the, am I watering them right? Is the soil, soil fertile? Am I disciplining them right? Am I, pushing them hard to do tough things or and then also at the same time I don't want to push them too hard and become like you know just an, a na- someone who's always nagging and and doesn't have a good relationship with them so that's something that I'm really trying to figure out a balance right now at my stage in life as my boys are getting a little bit older to the point where they're actually able to learn more things you know so yeah, and, and and it's a balance for me too, focusing on education and behavior, mm-hmm. um, because they need to learn stuff like educational stuff, math and science and reading and and all that different kind of stuff. But they also are learning behavioral things as well. You know, we don't say that, or we don't we don't talk like that, or we don't act like that towards people, or you know, just yeah. kind of teaching those nuanced things that just don't particularly come naturally to everyone. Um, yep. Yeah, it's a balance for sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's just the kids got to learn somehow. And it's 
yeah, for me, it's just like right now, I think one of my, it's difficult, you know, like the different age, age groups for your kids, that uh, makes a big difference. So like my oldest is not really athletically inclined. Uh, he's, but he's wicked smart with like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, coding, uh, he loves Rubik's cubes. You, you got him a Rubik's cube for his birthday and he just absolutely loves that kind of stuff, but he's not, doesn't really love sports that much. And so the second oldest kind of follows suit a little bit, but they do so many other things, but I'm like, I want them to be well-rounded and being it, be able to throw a football, be able to bounce a basketball, yeah. be able to do some things. But uh, it's just, there's just so different that it's almost like, yeah, I wish I just had a so much individual time to instruct them on, on things that are suited to their personality. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But that, I guess those are the woes of any father trying to do their best by their kids and uh, create that legacy. So, and two, I mean, all you can do is your best and, you know, try to be supportive in, in anything that you can. And I, w- one thing that someone gave me some advice one time when I was having kids and I was going through that and I think it was like my second child and, um, you know, we, I don't know if it was like a baby shower thing or whatever, but it, we, they went around and all the people in the, in the room gave advice to the new parents. Maybe it was, but maybe it was our first kid. Uh, but one of the advice that I received, and I have given this to a couple other people, was um, was don't compare your child to other children. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't in the fact of like, I mean, there has to be some comparing, right? Just because your child has to reach some milestones, right? If your child is three years old and still can't walk, then you yeah, know yeah. there's probably a developmental issue there. Um, but it was just in the general sense, don't compare yourself to other kids, uh, your kids to other kids, even within siblings, mm-hmm. because, oh, you know, this one kid walked it, you know, I have one kid that walked it, uh, like 10 months. And then I have another kid that didn't walk until, uh, like 14 months. And so, you know, it's like, well, why is one kid walking six months earlier than the other kid? Yeah. Well, it's, it, it, I mean, they're both running around right now. Yeah. And so that comparison a lot of times it makes you feel like you're doing something wrong or there's something wrong with my child that's not true at all i mean it, it, if there is something wrong then it'll show itself and and you know you can can act as a as a family to to overcome that and to 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 try to train your way out of that but um you know kids grow at different speeds and they like different things and they're good at different things um and just to kind of accept that and to try to you know, I guess grow the grass where wherever it's growing. Yeah. The grass grows green wherever you seed it. <laughs> yeah, wherever you water it the most. Yeah, exactly. So, well, this has been a cool episode, man. I think we've shared some really interesting stories. And uh, if you have time, uh, go check out some of these child prodigies. Go check out some of Mozart's work. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and he's not the only one. You know, uh, Beethoven was another one, that famous one, that uh, he was deaf. Uh, he was another child prodigy that is very well known uh, in the musical, classical musical world. Uh, but then you took like Michael Jackson, uh, or and uh, you know, even maybe Justin Bieber to some sense. I mean, these maybe not child prodigy, but definitely s- seriously talented uh, at a very young age. Um, so there's lots of cool stuff out there. So uh, as parents, yeah. support if, your kids and uh, go ahead, Ethan. Now I was going to say if if you. Uh, 
I was going to say, if you own a child prodigy, <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> oh, if you are in the process of rearing a child prodigy, or you were one growing up, or uh, heck, maybe if Justin Bieber even wanted to get on the podcast, we'd probably have him, right? Why not, man? I, I think there's very few people I would not have on the podcast. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But. So I, I think this is great. You know, I think we've talked about a lot of different things. We've talked about the whole spectrum of, uh, you know, from uh, Mozart to... Uh, you know, the, the, this other guy who had all the, the, what would seem like all of the opportunity in the world. And then, uh, you know, ended up just selling marijuana. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think what, all we can do is support those around us, encourage people to, to do their best and to, to be the best that they can and, and be a good example and try to live the best life that we can always be growing, always be learning. Uh, I think that's a, a, a huge aspect to anyone and, and building their own personal creed. So hopefully all of this was, was helpful and that all of us can continue to build our creed together. All right, let's do it.